Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we discuss domestic violence, an issue that affects one-third of women and teen girls in the U.S. And as the COVID-19 pandemic has led to widespread sheltering in place, the situation has only gotten worse. Many domestic violence advocates are calling attention to the fact that this, too, is an epidemic, and we need to do more to prevent it. My guest is Catherine Berg, Director of Community Partnerships and Philanthropy at La Casa de las Madres, a domestic violence prevention organization in San Francisco. pandemic situation, and what I mean by that is the COVID-19 pandemic situation, and how that has affected the landscape for domestic violence. It has been transformational for the way we reach survivors, for the way that survivors are able to access our support, as well as for the kinds of dangers and risks um, that are facing survivors in their own homes. Earlier this year, the media did a great job of calling out the intensification of risk that happened as we were all sheltering in place, doing absolutely the right thing for our health and for public health under normal circumstances. But if you were in an abusive relationship or living in an unsafe home, suddenly being thrust into an environment where you were told by external parties not to leave could be really dangerous and and was really dangerous for a lot of people. We definitely uh, saw an increase in the intensity of abuse. You know, we saw not an increase in calls to our hotline necessarily, although they did kind of spike back up and we experienced a 300% increase in um, texts to our messaging line. The way that you would normally reach out and get help, those ways were closed. The ways that people would normally get support were closed. Um, And the way that you would normally exit uh, a situation that was heating up where you felt an intensification um, and might normally go for a walk or send the kids to the neighbor's house because things were getting heated and you were recognizing the signs of, um, you know, an abusive situation that was going to be more problematic than, than what you were typically managing on a daily basis. Uh, Those kind of coping mechanisms were no longer available uh, and the results were awful. I'm so sorry to hear that. And so how did La Casa respond uh, to this shift? Well, we uh, kept operating 24-7 24-7 throughout uh, all of the changes that happen. So, you know, we operate in a, in a kind of a crisis environment on a regular basis. And luckily that really equipped our staff and volunteers to step up and be ready, um, knowing that in times of crisis, things can get more complicated in people's personal lives and uh, those additional stressors intensify violence at home. So um, we, of course, Uh, sheltered in place, uh, as everyone else did for a while. Our drop-in center closed to in-person services, but we were reaching out to everybody by phone. We were answering our hotlines live 24 hours a day. Um, Our emergency shelter, which typically houses 35 women and children and was full um, as shelter in place went into effect. Um, There were some folks who decided to go back to their former living situations. There was a lot of uncertainty and fear, but our shelter stayed operational and uh, we shifted really quickly into a pod-based model. We have long worked with the local Department of Public Health here very closely and um, we're immediately collaborating with them to determine how we could 
keep people safe inside of the shelter and, and make clear to folks who needed to come into shelter that this was going to be a safe place for them even in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, that was one of the biggest questions that I had because if you're in a shelter situation, then there's probably a little bit more uh, connecting with individuals at close quarters than in other situations. And yet this type of service is so critical. And and as you've been saying, even more critical during this past year, you went to a pod-based model, you worked with the city. What were some other ways that you were able to keep people safe who needed this service and balance the need to provide this service with the requirements of pandemic living. Yeah. And with the requirements to keep our staff and volunteers safe as well. Right. I mean, this is, you know, you're balancing things on both ends. Um, Well, I mean, we instituted really aggressive cleaning and disinfecting protocols. I mean, we have a facility that's unique under normal circumstances because when folks come into our domestic violence shelter, they have their own room. So we did not have to manage the communal uh, sleeping spaces like some other shelters did. What we did to transition into a pod model was identify the bathrooms we have and then assign a bathroom to a bedroom. So we could have one bedroom and one bathroom and that's our pod. We then kind of adjusted the way that everything else happened. Services shifted dramatically. Um, Of course, we had to pause all group services. Everything was socially distanced. There's decals all over the floor of the shelter facility itself, making sure that people understand how far six feet is. Um, You know, we mandated that folks wore masks and did not encounter any issues to that initially, which was great. And we have a communal kitchen where, you know, we serve three meals a day, three hot meals a day, plus two healthy snacks to everybody who's staying with us. Another example of how it's like basic needs should not be on your mind right now. You know, you save your money, save your energy. And that dining space is also a really important uh, place for staff and advocates and families to come together and connect and talk about resources or just build a relationship that's going to help on their healing path. Of course, that had to shift and we moved into three meal shifts and assigned the families and women who were in residence with a time that they could come and get their food. During the, the most strict shelter in place, we were delivering meals to rooms So people were, they had their own space and they were safe, but you know, it's small and it's confining and it's challenging. And of course, testing protocols. We moved into having our staff, you know, who are all essential workers tested every 14 to 21 days to make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent the communal spread. You brought up the staff and they are, you know, in my book, and I think a lot of people feel this way, heroes. Talk a little bit about your view of the staff, what maybe the staff needs, what kind of support and and how they're doing? Yeah. I mean, the the staff are amazing. I am, you know, constantly in awe and impressed by the amount of dedication uh, that folks will show. I mean, this is not work that you just kind of stumble into to begin with. And so the people who are here with us um, on a daily basis uh, also feel the urgency for making sure that safety is available to folks 24 hours a day. And, you know, what we do as an organization under, you know, normal circumstances is also to help, you know, encourage self-care and make sure that folks who are dealing with trauma on a daily basis um, can get the time and space uh, that they need to process what's going on and move out of a caretaker role. So, you know, throughout 
the really early days of the pandemic, we did a lot of uh, check-ins with the staff to make sure that you know they were safe in their home environments and that they had what they needed. And coming into work was planned out and safe, and they understood you know what the organization was putting into effect in order to protect them as well as the clients. A lot of staff uh, were working from home initially and then moved into uh, staggered schedules. So, you know, I mean, I think the staff felt really supported. And, of course, we, we also added in some hero pay to try to do what we could to make sure that people felt really supported and recognized. People were not working their full 40-hour shifts and were receiving full 40-hour pay. So as an organization, we were super happy and grateful that we have the community support to do that. We have a lot of private funding. Half of our operating funds are raised privately each year, which really gives us the flexibility to make decisions like that, which are in the best interest of our mission and our our staff and our clients. You know, you brought up the funding support, and it's really wonderful to hear that there is such a private community of funders that is supporting the CASA. Because my next question was kind of about that, about domestic violence is by its very nature behind closed doors. And a lot of the attitudes toward it are still, I think, oh, well, that's happening over there. Just, I don't know what to do about it. So I'm just going to walk on or, you know, like the idea of I'm not sure how to handle that. And then I was also thinking, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger did a video a couple of weeks ago and he, in the video, he referenced when he was growing up. And at that time, there were a lot of Austrian fathers, men who had been on one side or the other during World War II. And a lot of them had a lot of guilt and they took that out by, you know, there was domestic violence in a lot of homes. And so he basically said, you know, I, my dad was doing it, but so were all the other people on the street. So he was he said it was painful, but it's what it was. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that attitude still exists in some senses. And I've also heard a lot of language in the past year of this is also a pandemic. We need to face this and talk about it in those terms. So I'm wondering if you can help me grapple with with that and trying to bring something that's been so, oh, that's over there into the open so we can really, really deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the core of our transformational work yeah. right there. I mean, I agree with you. Those attitudes are still prevalent, less so than they used to be. Uh, you know, when La Casa was founded in 1976, I mean, domestic violence wasn't even a thing, right? We might be talking about wife battering or wife beating, the vocabulary and the way that we thought about being in an intimate relationship and what those rights and responsibilities looked like was very different. You know, we have made social and cultural shifts in recognizing that gender is not binary and is not determinative. And I think that that's really important, really recognizing that there is still a toxic masculinity and it's not always just held by men. We have, you know, made some progress in really being able to separate out sex and gender and recognize, you know, in relationships that are abusive, 85% of uh, the victims are women, but 15% are men, and domestic violence occurs in same-sex and heterosexual relationships at the same rates. This is about power and control. It's not about size uh, or gender, but it is a gendered crime. So there's an important distinction there. Uh, and as you pointed out, it's it's an epidemic. You know, It affects one out of every three American women across her lifetime. One out of three. One out of three. And... 
Yeah, one out of seven men and one out of two transgender individuals. Wow. It's still the leading cause of death for women ages 16 to 44. Oh, my God. For murder, the hands of their intimate partner. The other important piece, and I think that you brought this up in referencing Arnold Schwarzenegger's video, is that violence is a learned behavior, which is why it can be unlearned. There's an individual responsibility to do that, but there is also a societal responsibility to teach healthy relationship behaviors and expectations. And so that's something that we prioritize here at La Casa, preventing future violence by educating the community uh, about what is domestic violence and how do we redefine the perceptions of its normalcy. It's not normal. It shouldn't be normal to use violence. Thank goodness we have made a presidential administrative change so that we don't have someone who is abusive in our highest office normalizing right. terrible, terrible behaviors. Right. We do a lot of work in talking with people like you're, you're right. The domestic violence thrives in, in silence. And, you know, we're talking with youth. We're talking with parents. We're talking with adults in, in corporate settings, in colleges about, you know, what is domestic violence and what is a healthy relationship? What does it mean to have a relationship that's based on mutuality where, both partners' needs are being met, and one person's not trying to gain power and control over the other one. How do you engage in that kind of a relationship? And recognizing that no one's perfect, and you know, bad behaviors are bad behaviors, but domestic violence is a pattern of behavior that someone uses in order to gain and maintain power and control over another individual. It is very purposeful when it is happening. That means that we have to hold people who are using abuse um, responsible for that at the same time that we make uh, changes in our cultural expectations. Now, I appreciate that. Something that's come up for me is the idea of systems, uh, systems thinking. And I've kind of found that we in the U.S., maybe this is a too blanket of a statement, but we don't tend to be great at systems thinking because it's such an individualistic society. And I think domestic violence, in my estimation, falls into that realm of that person is doing that. And you brought up the idea of toxic masculinity exists inside a system. A president, someone who helps that office was reinforcing that system of it's being okay. And I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's not politics at all. It's that is horrifying. And so I love when you talk about the idea of let's deal with these ideas of toxic masculinity. Let's deal with these ideas of power and control and what it means to have a mutual. And I call like I call my husband my teammate, you know, rather than my husband because we're a team. And I think the idea of insecurity, it's like to trying to figure out how to be secure in your own self. All of this to get at this idea of systems and really pulling this into a place where we can talk about more as part of a system that needs some change. Models are really important, right? And I think we can't underplay how important those influences are. One of the strategies that we advocate for, especially around raising boys and men, you know, into men, but also girls into women, right? You recognize that when you see a model, when you're watching a television show or a movie, that is communicating really clearly to the young person or any person who's sitting there. So, you know, having a conversation about how that makes you feel or what you think about it, like using it as a teaching tool is really important because we have to change these systems through the same kind of repetitive reinforcement that have come to dominate our thinking and cultural norms. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Katherine Berg, Director of Community Partnerships and Philanthropy at La Casa de las Madres. The other mindset that I think is really problematic when it comes to 
power and control in domestic violence is the idea of this scarcity mindset, right? That there's just not enough to go around. And you see that related to vulnerability and how hard it is to be vulnerable, how hard it is to feel like you can give something and that's not going to take anything away from you. It's actually going to create more. And I think when you're in a healthy relationship and you realize that, you know, by being vulnerable, you're seen and you have your needs met and that fills up your cup twice as much as having forced somebody into doing something that you thought you needed. Uh, when you experience that feedback loop, things change, but you have to experience the feedback loop. And so how do we get people there um, on a societal level? There's a lot of work that needs to be done. What keeps people, let's talk about the, the people who are experiencing the abuse. What keeps someone rooted in a situation like that and I mean certainly inertia or certainly not knowing where to go or certainly this is familiar yeah. that's unfamiliar I mean all of that but I would love to hear what you come come to understand about th that dynamic right well I mean I think it's really important to start from recognizing that abusers don't start out as abusive right the relationship doesn't begin with a punch in the face. Um, that relationship wouldn't continue. You know, the cycle of violence is, is maintained by denial and fear, and it's built up slowly. The warning signs that you might identify later, early on in a relationship, look like somebody really caring and paying attention. Oh, he wants to know where I am all the time. That's so sweet. Um, oh, you know, like he doesn't want me wearing that kind of a top. He cares about me and he's paying attention. The behaviors escalate and shift. You know, when someone is in an abusive relationship, you look back and you can see maybe how you got there, but it can be really hard because, you know, the person who's hurting you is also the father of your children or um, the person who's hurting you is, you know, the one you've been married to for 20 years or the one who's supporting you and the one who you love. Um, and you're dependent upon financially. So, you know, when we think about how hard it is to leave an abusive relationship, I like to point people to um, jobs. Like, you know, were you in a job where you were unhappy and maybe you weren't being treated well or maybe you weren't recognized in the way that you thought you needed to be? And how hard is it to leave? There are a lot of logistical and tangible elements to think about, right? And then there are also things that you're receiving from that job, money, recognition, whatever those things are. So when you're thinking about an abusive relationship, it's similar. There are attachments and apologies and there's connection and you want to believe that somebody's going to change when you're attached in that way. And they're telling you that they're going to change. In addition to the external factors, maybe you've been taught that it's against your religious beliefs to leave your partner culturally, like you just stick it out or you're there for the kids because you want your kids to have two parents in the house. You know, maybe you, you haven't had a job in a long time or you don't know how you're going to afford rent in San Francisco um, if you don't have a partner to help you pay for it. Uh, you might be embarrassed to come out to your friends as, you know, somebody who, you know, how did I get here? This isn't me. You know, that's very real. This isn't me. The idea of like, I would never get into this situation. And oh my God, and yet here I am, I'm in this situation. Yep. And you brought up uh, the another systems thing, you know, religion or or the way you were raised. Getting divorced is, was seen as bad. Or yeah, the, the, the stressors of how am I going to do this on my own. And then the, the idea of embarrassment. How can the rest of us, how do we help? What can we do? How can we contribute to making this better? By checking in on the people who we care about and by... Um, asking questions when you're concerned about somebody and working hard not to judge, 
right? You kind of need to remember that you don't know what it's like on the inside of that relationship. But if you do care about this person, that's the message that you need to send. The strongest response is to offer unconditional support uh, and to be there. So we really encourage people to not feel like uh, they need to be a savior. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. You know, what you need to do is ask someone if they're okay and then listen and tell them that you care about them. Let them know that, you know, they don't deserve to be treated this way and avoid telling them what to do. Avoid demonizing their partner because, you know, you recognize that this is a really complicated situation. And as we just talked about, um, there are a lot of layers in every relationship, whether it's abusive or healthy. It takes on average several times before they might leave an abusive partner, or maybe they're not ready to do that right now at all. And they want to figure out how to be safer in the relationship. And that's where knowing about resources like La Casa de las Madres really comes in because we're here to help somebody think it through. You know, it's options counseling, it's safety planning. It's like survivor centered, you know, your life and your relationship best. We know what risk and danger looks like. And we want to help you understand what that might look like for you in your current relationship and some strategies to help you avoid um, harm. Uh, but we are here to help you figure out what's going to be safe and best for you in the circumstances that you're in. And this isn't just physical abuse either. This is emotional abuse and verbal abuse and, and, and psychological abuse. No, absolutely. Physical violence is just kind of the tip of the iceberg and it doesn't always exist. Absolutely not. Privilege, economic status, race, ethnicity, religion, all of these things can impact the type of abuse that maybe a person uses as well as like what it looks like on the other end. Economic abuse is one of the most prevalent types of abuse. 98% of the survivors we serve talk about the ways that they have been controlled economically. Um, whether that's in not, you know, being able to make decisions about how household income is spent, having to turn over all the income that they make, or having someone take out a huge pile of debt in their name that they're responsible for and had no knowledge of or control over. Extreme isolation, again, kind of pulling us back to where we are in COVID-19 right now, where Oftentimes, one of the key dynamics in an abusive relationship is, you know, creating a dependence on the abuser and the abuser alone, whether that's a psychological, physical, or a financial dependence, right? I'm the only one who cares about you, nobody else, and cutting off those relationships with external folks. That's like an important sign, right, when somebody starts disappearing from other relationships in their life. And a, a real opportunity for those of us in community with one another to reach out uh, and just check in. Hey, you know, I haven't seen you around very much. You know, how are things? And a good question to ask, you know, so what, what happens when you guys fight? And, you know, really thinking about, you know, how do you want to be treated in a relationship? Once you open the door, trying to understand what somebody's relationship is like, um, then you can kind of poke around for some of the, the clearer signs that there's abuse in the relationship and then hopefully connect them to a counselor or someone who, who can help them figure out what to do next. Thank you. What happens when you guys fight and how would you like to be treated? Those are just two really important opening questions. And I appreciate those are good, good tools, I think, for people to start with. It's apparent that the pandemic is a, um, a really ripe situation for, as you said earlier, this type of, of situation to intensify, and for control to really be sort of become more absolute or become more intense. When it comes to 
uh, abused adults or children, what should we be looking for, especially if all we have is I'm seeing you on Zoom or we're having a phone call? Good questions. It's much more challenging to recognize, but you know, you can see injuries, bruises, or somebody covering up uh, with turtlenecks when it's maybe not the season for it. It can also come out in low self-esteem, um, shifts in behavior, changes in wardrobe. Somebody becomes really overly apologetic because they're doubting themselves all the time and their self-esteem is being chipped away at. They're becoming more isolated from family and friends. Maybe they're not showing up to your Zoom calls anymore. And, you know, you want to reach out by phone or by text and uh, try a different strategy in order to reach that person. Youth, February is actually National Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. So we have been focusing some of our outreach efforts on making sure that folks recognize that teen dating violence is also a significant problem. One in three teens will experience some form of abuse in their relationships in high school. With youth, digital abuse is a really big issue there. Um, somebody taking over your social media handles or you know posting things without your permission. If you have teens just listening in to what's going on, academic abuse is another big one because you're taking someone's time and attention and disallowing them from accomplishing the things that they need to. So we see changes in academic performance as a big one, relationships falling out of a person's life and having the psychology is very different for teens than it is for grown-up people. So their social relationships and their peer groups are so important and they're also separating from their parents and adults. And so, you know, there's a lot of push and pull in identity formation that can be challenging for parents of teens, but it's really important to recognize when all of the relationships beside the significant other are disappearing. That's a real red flag. It's interesting. The psychology is different and social groups are so critical, but that one in three number is still there. So these patterns are developing. You know, I really appreciate you bringing up earlier economic abuse and academic abuse, which I hadn't thought about, and digital abuse. These are all things, you know, when we think about abuse, there's some traditional ways people think about it. And I appreciate the enlightenment on expanding our concept of what that means to help us recognize it and, and reach out and help. What is your biggest concern right now? What do you feel like is falling through the cracks? What keeps you up at night? People who can't reach out to their communities or for help right now and who are feeling really isolated. That is really what keeps me up at night. You know, we're all dealing with a new, new to most of us, layer of anxiety around health concerns and moving about in the world. And I know just how critical those relationships are for people who are living in abusive conditions, right? Whether it is a walk to the grocery store, the chance for someone, you know, to see them, you know, all of the ways that people aren't going to regular checkups for their medical professionals, going into schools and having contact with folks who are paying attention to them in different ways and giving them other feedback. I don't enjoy this physically distant world that we have created at this point. It's terrifies me for folks who are really trapped in these dangerous situations. The work that we have to do is really in figuring out how to move back, how to reinvest in some of the street outreach that we did 20 years ago. We need to kind of pound the pavement once again and really 
make sure that people are able to be safe. I do some bridging work uh, with a couple organizations, Civity. And so I was thinking of the concept we talk about a lot of seeing, of actually seeing someone. And one thing about our pandemic context is that we've all had to slow down a little bit. I mean, I think for some people it's become more intense parenting. and But I think there is an element of we're all captive at home and we have the opportunity to take that and channel it towards seeing each other. And so maybe that's something we can think about. It's like, well, now that we're here in this context, how can I see better? How can I notice better? How can I look at you better? One strong voice can really save a life. That's a really important concept to take home. And everybody has a role to play in ending abuse. Unconditional support is the very best form of intervention. And seeing, as you're saying, seeing the person in front of you, listening to them and recognizing that we are all part of the systems that we create. So individually and collectively, you know, let us ask for more and then make it happen. Thank you. I thank you so much for your time. I I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Catherine Berg, Director of Community Partnerships and Philanthropy at La Casa de las Madres. If you're experiencing domestic violence or afraid for someone in your life, call La Casa at their 24-hour hotline, 877-503-1850, or text 415-200-3575. You can also find more information at lacasa.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.